Hello, my name is Tucker Johnson, and you are experiencing NIMSY Live, where we talk about the latest and the greatest in translation, localization, internationalization, culturalization, globalization, and all of that other fun stuff that global companies need to delight their international customers, or at least to not piss them off too much. On this program, we invite guests who like to have fun and also have some value to add for our audience of globalization professionals. I'm always eager to provide a platform to those with a good story or a good data set. So let us know if there are any topics you'd like covered or guests we should reach out to for future episodes. Subscribe. Make sure that if you're watching this, if you're watching this on YouTube, if you're watching this on Facebook, Twitter, whatever it is, make sure to subscribe and follow NIMSI Insights. That way you're going to be the first person to get notified when we do these live sessions or when we um, publish new events. If if you are watching us on one of the other platforms like YouTube, Twitter, come on over to LinkedIn. Um, LinkedIn is kind of where we where we like to be here, and that's where our biggest audience is. Um, a little bit about the platform, just really quickly. Uh this is a live stream via LinkedIn, and this is kind of a new thing that LinkedIn's doing, and we're taking full advantage of it here at Nimsy Insights. And there's a number of different ways that you, the audience, can participate in the event. So since this is live, um, you can um, engage in the comments section. Uh, anytime your comments are going to be brought up on screen here, I believe I have that turned on. So if you're the first to comment on this live stream, then you're going to be the first to come up here on screen, and we'll make sure to be getting those back to you. The second way to do this is to use those um, use those buttons, those reaction buttons down there. If you like something, you find something insightful, smash it. Uh, you can use it multiple times throughout the stream. So it's not just a matter of liking it once. If someone says something that you agree with, make sure to su show your support there. Before we get into it too deeply, I just want to say if you like this content, if you like the stuff that we're talking about here today, make sure to go over and check out our sister programs at Multilingual Television or MLTV on YouTube. We have a host of different programming. We have Last Week in Localization with Sarah Hickey. That's actually an NIMSY property. We have The Venn Diagram with Michael Reed, Te'epe with Juanma Lopez, High Performance Leaders with Andrew Smart, The Open World Videocast, um, webinars, a whole series of webinars, the season series webinars, and of course, the C-Suite Hot Seat, where NIMSY analysts interview C-level leaders, typically CEOs, from the most... Um, from the LSPs in the industry, the most the most LSP LSPs in the industry. So if any of those programs sound interesting, go over and check those out. So without further ado, today we are talking about the intersection of product design and localization. It is a it is a topic that I've been talking a lot about recently with a lot of different people. Um, a lot of folks are really starting to explore this overlap between localization and user-centric design principles. And I've even taken a stab at publishing it myself. Let's see, Let's see if I can get a copy here. Um, publishing something myself. I wrote an article in Multilingual Magazine. Um, it's super easy to find because it's the one with, do I have a, can I change cameras here? No, it's the one with the um, with the pictures in it. Well, that one doesn't have a picture. Shoot, I'm off to a good start here. It's the one with the pictures in it. So it's called Experiential Localization Quality Assurance. Make sure to go check that out. But I don't want to just plug myself here. I want to get into our guests. Um, but before I get into the guests, let's let's plug the guests thing here. I want to I want to talk a little bit about this lovely piece of content right here. It's called the Complete 
Guide to Design Stage Localization. And this is a PDF that's been published by the, the folks over at Localize. And it is, bam, right here. So if we're here at the event, which you're here at the event. Well, let's refresh here. If you're here at the event on LinkedIn Live, which, let's be real, you are. Then you just scroll down here and the folks over at Localize have made it available right here. You can take a look at it. You can follow along at home. You can download the PDF and do anything you want with it. Anyways, this guide is really, if I ask a smart question or two on the stream today, this guide is really the only reason that <laughs> I halfway sound smart because I use this to prepare. So without further ado, let's get into it. Our first panelist, Nicholas Hissinger from Localize, is a prolific writer and has published articles on the subject of design and localization. Make sure to follow and connect with Nicholas before or after the event here on LinkedIn. He is currently a senior customer success manager at Localize. And remember, that's Localize with a K and with an S. Uh, which is a company that gives developers the tools they need to eliminate localization hassle with a powerful TMS built for agile teams who want to automate the, their localization processes. That's a mouthful. Uh, if that sounds pretty cool to you, then make sure to reach out to Nicholas afterwards for a demo. Next up, we have Romain um, Dahan, who is our second panelist, and he is the Apps and Services Manager at Withings, in charge of user experience and empowering global users around the globe. That's pretty redundant of me, but that's okay. Beyond product management responsibilities, Romain is continuously trying to um, trying out and implementing new tools and frameworks for a better team collaboration and information transparency for his stakeholders. And lastly, besides our, our two panelists here, there's you, the chat, and you're the most important guest here today. So we have around, I don't know, I don't see the, the stats, but we have a bunch of you. We have a bunch of you in chat here today, so make sure to make your voices heard during the chat, and we'll be taking your questions throughout and afterwards. So, <sighs> gentlemen, that was, I think I'm done here. I think I need a drink of water after that intro, but welcome to the show. Um, Nicholas Romain. Tell us a little about, bit about yourself. So let's start with Nicholas. What, what, did, did I get it right? Did I, did I cover all bases in the intro I gave you there? I think you covered pretty much everything, to be honest. Um, more than that, of course, as part of Localize, I help onboard and give training to, uh, to our stakeholders and try to make sense of their localization workflows start to end, making use of Localize. Um, that's pretty much uh, it in terms of my scope of work at, at Localize. And of course, I've been working very closely with Romain, who's here uh, from Wizings on improving our, well, initially it was the Figma plugin, but those improvements have been passed down to Sketch as well and Adobe XD. So I'll yep. let Romain take it from here. Yeah, we're going to get into that um, because this isn't, this is the first time I've talked to you gentlemen, but you guys have been working together for quite a while here and there's got the case studies to prove it. So Romain, tell us a little bit about what you do over at Withings and how you came to work with the guys over at Localize. Yeah, thank you for inviting us. So yeah, I joined Withings two years ago almost. Um, and for some of you that don't know Withings, Withings is a French company, a medical tech company, and we make uh, devices that uh, you can wear or have at home and monitors your health. Um, it's medical grade devices. And with that, um, that we distribute these products globally. And with the fact that we are medically grade uh, devices and we distribute globally, localization is very important for us. Uh, 
both in terms of regulations in different countries and also with the uh, quality that we want to deliver. So when I arrived two years ago, um, the localization process was not as efficient as we would have wanted. Um, and that's when we started to look out for tools. And when we uh, started to discuss with the localized team, we uh, really feel like uh, we were heard and we start collaborating. And now it's been, yeah, uh, more than a year that uh, we collaborate with Nicholas and um, him and the team at Localize helped us so much um, to uh, move towards what we'll discuss today, a better, better localization process that involves heavily the design team. So, and that brings us right into it. Well, once again, though, welcome, Nicholas. Welcome, Romain. Thank you for, and thank you for joining us. I don't think I, I've mentioned that today, but let's dive right into it here. And I kind of want to split this up really based upon, you know, as, as I was preparing for this, I think I told you guys this beforehand, I, um, I found this complete guide to the design, design stage localization, which you guys have put together here. And it includes quotes from you, Romaine, and a case study with, um, with Withing. So we're really going to be using this as kind of a, to structure our conversation today, um, starting with design stage localization 101. And Nicholas, I want to throw this one over at you. You've been teaching and writing about design stage localization for a while. I've, I've read a bunch of your stuff, but not everybody knows what it is. So it's like, all right, what is, first of all, like what is design? What is localization and how do we bring bring these two together and what are we talking about when we're talking about design stage localization? And I just okay, realized uh, I was I was pro I think everyone was just staring at poor Romaine forever here. I apologize for that guys. We're having technical difficulties. All right, there I am back. You were a champ. That's great. You were a champ just sitting there with a poker face through all of that, Romaine. <laughs> Nicholas, over to you. Yeah, um, if I could break down your, your question, maybe I'd like to give some context maybe into the traditional approach before design stage even became uh, a hot topic in the market. So initially you had uh, products that were basically managed between developers and product owners. Uh, many times, and you still see it in the market, some products are not even internationalized. Um, that means that they might release the product with the English strings or the base language strings inside the code itself. And so there, there was a process in the market to learn to internationalize it. So remove those hard-coded strings in the code and place a key identifier uh, to represent this code. This makes it easier then to be able to have the same product and different uh, language settings outside of that product in different locale files. Um, this pr process works um, great and, and traditionally then uh, you'd have mostly developers um, manage the, the key identifiers, and they would then still release in the base language, right? And so the product was ready for, let's say, English. However, once they decided, okay, we need to expand here, we need to, to move into new markets, new languages, uh, you may realize that some languages expand, and then the design or the product is not adequate for it or you may have some issues with right-to-left languages, for example. Um, and so this is where the design comes into the process because if you're following a, a model where everything is first decided on the design, you have the full wireframing, the user journey, 
decided at, at that stage, it's still fairly flexible because you're, you're not already uh, limited by the actual development process, right? And so fixing and pulling in the target languages at this stage and noticing what's wrong and what can be fixed for a global audience um, probably makes it a lot easier. And I, I think that kind of qualifies what design stage is. It's thinking uh, or taking into consideration uh, a global audience, uh, many different languages before development actually happens. Does that make sense? That, that makes that makes total sense to me. So let me just make sure that I clarify though. So like what you're saying is like if you if you let me translate this. If we get our 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 clause in our localization clause into the product in the design stage, then the product hasn't even been designed, so it's not in production yet. So it's actually much more flexible to be able to dictate or suggest <laughs> dictate something. <laughs> Who do I think I am to be able to suggest the changes to the product teams? Is that a correct understanding of it? I, I think so. Obviously, it's not going to uh, be applicable to all the products out there that are already rolled out. So mm -hmm. you'll need some flexibility. But if you have the flexibility to start uh, at the design stage and, and you have that flexibility to take into account all the different cultural imageries, the alignments, um, the expansion of different uh, languages, the different alphabet, be it Cyrillic or Arabic, um, before you start to develop the new, be it new feature, new product, I think you're going to avoid a lot of those design bugs and a lot of customer complaints at the end of the day, right? So you can remain customer focused from the, be uh, from the beginning, customer centric. All right, bringing up the, the C word already, customer centricity. Romain, tell me a little bit about that. Um, the the customer centricity they, they they mentioned that you're going to be um having fewer issues having fewer challenges how as a customer because let's be clear like you're engaging with localized that's the relationship that's the case study that's the context we're having this conversation with and they're helping you solve these problems implementing localization in the design stage how has that made your life better how has that made your life life easier yeah so yeah just about to uh, complete on on the d design part uh Actually, um, what, what we do when we uh, design products is that we uh, focus on global audience and uh, you, can, you can hear a lot about um, accessibility in products, inclusive, uh, inclusivity also in, in the products. And what we, we, we've missed uh, in, the, in the last uh, years, I think, is that actually the, the words we use and all the localization we use is actually part of the uh, accessibility and inclusivity. So that's why it makes totally sense to take what was at some point at the end of the process, the localization or the translation, uh, and to put it back where it belongs at the very beginning of the process. So um, that's, that's it for the, the, the part of why uh, localization actually is part of the design stage and not something that you do at the, at the end. And uh, when, 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 when I joined and what most uh, teams were doing back, back, back in the days and more and more are moving towards this, this new flow is that um, you would have the translation made at the end uh, and the tool set was not integrated uh, or seamless to use. So what, what uh, Localize helped us is move from 
uh, a spreadsheet where we would manage um, an app delivered to millions of users uh, in the world in 11 languages. And we moved from that, which was very uh, time-consuming, uh, which was subjected to lots of mistakes, um, which also brought few contexts to translators, because imagine translators that receive uh, Excel spreadsheets with medical terms, and that you need to translate it into 11 languages. Um, actually, you, you'd miss the context, you'd miss things. So we had this, and we had a lot of manual uh, operations to do. So that's why, yeah, in the, um, in the use case, what we, we say that is that from breaking the silos between the tools, the processes, and the teams, we moved from uh, a, a localization process that was much a pain that, uh, than bringing value to uh, actually a process where um, different stakeholders collaborate in order to um, focus on the quality of the user experience and the quality of how we speak to the customers. Yeah, yeah. I, let, me, let me just stop you right there. You, you mentioned different stakeholders. What, what kind of challenges does that present? Is because in order, from, from my understanding, in order to implement um, localization, because essentially we're moving localization upstream, right? Like we're talking about design stage localization, which is a cool new term, but we, as an industry, we've been talking about like, let's move localization upstream. We've been talking about that for a while. What are the complexities with trying to get buy-in from your stakeholder? Who, first of all, who are your stakeholders internally? And what are some of the challenges that you've had? Um, I don't want to say convincing them, um, but you know, helping them to understand the potential value add services that they could be reaping if they were to understand. Yeah. So um, when you when you build digital products, uh, actually, the, usually you have a, you have a product team, and the product team is uh, the symbiosis of product designers, product managers, and a tech team. And I, these three stakeholders, they collaborate very well because we are integrated. We are very close uh, in terms of management or uh, culture. But uh, nowadays, the, the, the localization happens sometimes in other, other teams, like content teams or uh, teams that are, yeah, uh, most of the time, like on the marketing part of the company. So the first challenge is that you um, you have uh, a boundary between these teams. So they belong to a different part of the organization. That's the first challenge we have to overcome. Because mm -hmm. with, with this, it means that it's like product and marketing companies, uh, uh, teams collaborate, but they don't have the same tools, the, the same uh, culture about how to ma make product. That was the, the first part. So you have to Convince, convince people that are in different teams and in different managements uh, to collaborate. Um, so first to work together and to work more together and to share the same tools. And that's what was maybe the most challenging is like to uh, move to a unified tool and to uh, work with people that are maybe not used to the same type of tools. And that's why... Uh, the integration 
that we built with uh, with Vocalize within the Figma, uh -huh. our design tool, helped a lot. The, the reason I'm smiling here is because like, what, like, what do you mean people don't want to give up their tools that they're working on? And, and this, you know, this is a common challenge and I don't care what organization you're in. I, I call it platform proliferation where there's just a bunch of different tools being used. There's redundancies happening. You know, different teams are using different project management tools, right? Like the tools that use the same things. And for, I mean, it, it's something for those of us like myself that you know grew up so to speak on the LSP on the on the vendor side it's you know this we're no stranger to this because all of our clients are using different tools they're all using different TMS systems they're all using different CMS systems they're all using different project management systems so it's it's perhaps a little bit more palatable for for folks on the the vendor side but on the client side like you guys have the same challenges a lot of times because your marketing team is using a completely different workflow than your um, your development team, than your legal team, than your HR team, anyone that's receiving content from you. Um, Nicholas, how, how, you know, my fellow vendor side guy here, how do you go about helping your clients with this? Um, you can talk about specifically the Withings case study or in general, what can you guys do on, on the localized side to help get buy-in for for the, I don't want to say end users, but for the stakeholder departments? That's a, yeah, that's a good question, actually. So although we would love to evangelize the design stage, and you know, leading with design workflow, uh, the reality, as you just mentioned, it's often difficult to get uh, stakeholder buy-in uh, just because the larger the organization, the more legacy tool sets they have, Maybe it's just going to take too long or they've evaluated at the cost of switching all of this and uh, implementing all the new process changes uh, might be difficult. So the first thing we really need to do is ask questions. What's the, what's the current workflow? Um, what are the pain points they're trying to solve? And more often than not, we realize that we need to work with them to actually document their current workflow and then discuss, okay, so here localized can help you. Um, here, unfortunately, this is all on your end. Uh, th this will take some uh, management change on your end that you'll need to work on, if not straight up development work as well. But it's an ongoing uh, process where you need to collaborate with your stakeholders. You need to identify all of the stakeholders involved, all of, all of the stakeholders that will be impacted by the proposed, uh, let's say, process improvements that we'd like to implement with the customers. Does that make sense? It does make sense. Romain, did you have anything to add? How, 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 have, how have you been being on the, the receiving end of that? Does that mesh with your experience? Yeah. So, well, yeah, because what we did really is that we, uh, we first made a, a puck on our team and we actually, we, we've shown other people in the company. Uh, the, the the improvement of the quality of the translations and, and the localization, mm -hmm. and then at some point it made its way, and uh, most team joined, and now we have all the team onboarded. But yeah, it, it took it took time. Yeah. Um, even with the with with the design team, because we were pushing to uh, get back the responsibility of localization in the hands of the designers, because we without uh, it was the, the proper way to deliver quality. What, wait, wait, wait. what does that mean? Get localization into the hands of designers. Did I hear that right? 
What do you yeah, mean by that? Yeah, because previously it was like, uh, you know, in most of the companies, it's the developers that creates all the translation keys and manages how uh, how you globalize your, your product. Mm -hmm. um, at, at WayThings, it was the product managers that were responsible for creating, updating the keys and really managing um, the tasks with translators, internal translators or LSPs. Um, so that means that the designers were and were and uh, overing and the um, the designs, and then we started working on on, on the localization. So what we we did with them is that they took back uh, it, this responsibility. So now when they design, they really have in mind the how it will uh, be uh, translated and how it will be. Uh, used and seen in other cultures or other countries. And what, and what has been the reception from from your internal stakeholders? Let's just say, Romain, um, what feedback have you received from the design teams? Um, because I, I, I know the benefits of localization. Like, we all know the benefits of localization. But what are the benefits to product designers? Like, how do you... How do you pitch this? How do you sell this? Because I'm, I'm sure there's a certain amount of evangelization and education that needs to happen with your teams, right? Yeah, so we are uh, very close. The, the app team is very, is very close. So we, we, we did that uh, together. But uh, yes, it was a, a new responsibility for them. But uh, as we told before, uh, we, uh, as a, a company, we have a, a mission to deliver quality to our users mm -hmm. and uh, we, we all know that if we bring back the localization at the beginning of the process as for accessibility and inclusivity it will bring more value to the users so it's more work to do at some point but we we know the value we have at Indian so it's, it, it, it's a value add it, it's a value add proposition right yeah what sort of and Nicholas? Perhaps this is a good one for you. You've you've written a lot, um, and you're you're out there speaking and teaching and demoing about design stage localization. What what are the shifts in thinking that people need to adopt? Is there a mindset change that's required for um, bringing localization upstream into the design stage? Absolutely, I think there is. Well, there, there's definitely a gap in education in the market uh, from what I noticed. So I think it's something new for designers overall to consider uh, localization and localization related topics such as key management. Um, so there's a lot of around that, which I, is just, you know, educating. I, 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 sorry, I'm, I'm going to be rude. I'm going to interrupt and I'm going to ask you because if I, if I'm wondering, then people listening are wondering what the heck is key yeah. management? <laughs> what are we talking? Give me the key management for dummies lesson here. That's a great question, but uh, Ronan, do you want to jump in on this? As a product manager, I know that this is hot yeah. topic for you. So, so yeah, yeah. So you know, usually when you when you start and you create a product, you uh, you code it and you just have your text uh, on the code. Uh, but uh, actually, what you need when you will translate it or deliver to multiple countries is to replace all the text uh, elements with uh, a key. So, which is an identifier. Uh, let's let's say you have a onboarding screen, and instead of saying uh, "Welcome to our app," you would put in a code 
uh, introduction description. And this is what we call the key, because in the code, you have a key, but then you have translation files. And depending on the language your device is on, um, the, the app will transform this key into the proper translation. So you have, a, you have usually, yeah, you have, you have a key and then you have the number of uh, translations you, you have in your product. All right. It, it, it makes sense to me now. If, if, let's move on. <laughs> let's move on. I, <laughs> yeah, don't I, want, I don't want to get <laughs> into the details let's, here. Of, of okay, the code, but that, but that was perfect, gentlemen. Some, Thank you. Yes, sir. Okay. So, some pain points about the key management. That, that was, the, I think, oh, what I was trying to get at. Yeah, let's talk about the pain um, points. There we go. Right. So I might you, not you understand to, key management, but I can understand pain points. <laughs> right. But let's just consider an edge case, right? So you have uh, uh, a text in English, which is, for example, tip or some other general uh, word in English, which makes sense given the context, right? However, take French, for example, it might be translated uh, in, in, in four different ways, depending on gender, on plural, or on the actual context, it'll be a completely different word. Uh, so then key management is considering, okay, so I have the same exact term referenced throughout my product, which is tip, but uh, I'll have one key for English. However, in French, all of a sudden it's a different term. So then yeah. I need a different string value. So then I need to consider, will I create a second key? What, when, so this is part of key management. If you have these placeholders that represent the product, or let's go even further, a uh, feature gets deprecated. It does not exist anymore. What do you do with all the, the key identifiers that you created for this product? Do you remove them? Do you keep them on? So all of these kind of topics that are usually central to product owners and product manage management aspect, starting with design stage where you're creating keys from the design, all of a sudden gets transferred potentially to your designers, depending on the ownership. There's hot topic on this. So. Yeah, well, yeah, anytime we're talking about ownership, <laughs> it, it's always exactly. a hot topic, right? Sure. And, and I imagine, you know, that's, it's always a big challenge. It's always a big challenge managing multiple stakeholders um, in, internally. Remain, I'm, I know I'm preaching to the choir on this. Uh, everybody's got competing goals and competing tool sets and competing processes like we've already talked about. So in a, situa in a situation like, like we've talked about where there are different tool sets, like people are using different tools because, you know, taking a look at the case study, the, um, the, the case study that we're, we're using here as, as an example is based upon a specific plugin, is based upon a specific process, like the Withings process, the Withings tool set and all of that. But if we're if we're to get away from that and just speak in more general tool terms, how do we approach a situation where everybody's working on a different tool set? Do we start small and pilot with, you know, one or one or two different tools or one or two different plugins for different people, or do we take a more holistic approach? What's the first practical step that that someone could take? And I'll open this up to either of you, whoever wants to jump in first. Okay. I'd, I'd say um, so. The first step, and it's what we did and what also Nicholas said, and I think that's what they, uh, they suggest in the, in the guidelines is you should map your current process and tools and identify where you, you, where you struggle, where you have, that's what we did. We, we mm -hmm. said, okay, we, we have a process and this part is manual. This part 
is duplicate. Mm -hmm. This type, this part takes hours to do. Okay. And then you, then you see if you can improve it, changing the process or changing the tool set. And then you test it. And the first, yeah, I, I would recommend testing with, with a team, a limited team, because we know it's a burden to change to for a company. So you always have to analyze what you, what you gain in the end. And that's, that's the, the outcome of the case study is that really we, we, uh, we uh, delivered at the end 90% faster feature rollout. So uh, what we did before the localization at three things was not localization, it was translation only. And with this approach of mapping the process and improving it, we ditched completely all the operational tasks, all the manual tasks. And now we only focus on, okay, uh, we, we, we have a design, we need to deliver it in 11 languages. Um, okay, let's, let's discuss it on Figma. Let's review it. Let's review the, the, the languages we manage internally. And we are, when we are okay, we just send it to our LSP. It takes like a few minutes and, and it's done. And before it was only jumping into uh, between spreadsheets and mails and all the tools. 90% is a lot, <laughs> right? Like w w when I, when I see this, when I first read this, I was like 90% faster. How does that even work? And, and when I started digging into it a little bit further, I realized like, oh, okay. So this is like, this is, this was kind of like a greenfield example. This was like a new process or a new new something that the a new requirement that you needed to localize so you took the opportunity and said all right since i needed to define a process for this anyways it's a brand new thing that we're getting i am i'm going to go for broke and i'm going to you know test this out and you've gotten good results 90 percent savings results out of this but i, I want to turn it over to nicholas here and ask you know, because as a customer success manager you're having conversations with people and you're making recommendations on what type of quality programs they should run, um, what type of um, design programs they should run, automations that they could have with their TMS, their plugins, blah, blah, blah. You're making all of these solutions-oriented recommendations. What is the situation, I'm gonna throw you a curveball here, what is the situation where you would not recommend going for an agile design stage localization program? It's a great question. Um... First one, probably if you have some sort of B2B, very niche market product where the quality of the localized product or does not matter very much, or it's not a business priority, you need to make sure it's a business priority to resonate with your target audience globally. If you don't have that and it's a legacy product and it just the overhead of refactoring all the code to allow uh, design stage localization, Probably, if you don't find the value in it, then don't do it. It's basically dependent upon who the end user is, right? It, it, would that be a fair way of summing it up? Like, for, you mentioned B2B companies with low-quality requirements. Um, those aren't... Your, go on. What's your strategy, basically? Is your strategy just very fast? I just need machine translation. I don't right. care if it's correct or not. Then maybe this is not for you, right? Right, right. Yeah. 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 But I I would never I would never advise it, but there I've I've had the situation where 
that's an ongoing topic and you need to warn the customers about the risks involved, obviously. Um, sure, sure. Is this something that makes sense for new programs? Like, what, what is the maturity level? Is this something that anybody should start thinking about? Or is this something that's really kind of like, you know, master's level syllabus here that's only for mature companies that are in established markets? So, I mean, I guess another way of phrasing this is what happens first? Should I start thinking about um, design principles and going upstream into the, you know, talking to the designers about localization? Should I start talking to them before we enter a market? Or is this something that I use to surprise and delight the markets that I'm already in? Or both? Ah, stumped you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Based on Romain's experience, I say both are possible. Mm -hmm. um, although it would really depend on the tech stack and what are your priorities. So there are hybrid models where you're not leading with the design, if that makes sense, but you mm -hmm. can still benefit from involving, you know, design testing, pushing visual context for your translators. They really need that. Um, so do consider it uh, during your implementation. Um, often, sometimes you've already rolled out to, to, to local markets and the translation is not great. And then you implement just visual context 101 and the quality of translations gets uh, get improved naturally. So depends, really depends. Makes sense. Let's, uh, let's take this. What time is it? About 9.38. I'm not sure if I schedule this for an hour or 90 minutes, but regardless, let's go over to chat. Where's my chat? Um, I just want to say hi. I haven't seen a whole lot of questions coming in from the chat. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, somebody asked, will this be available to watch after it is over? Yes. Yes, it is. All of the Nimty Live episodes are will remain available on LinkedIn. They will be available on Nimsy Insights' YouTube channel in the Nimsy Live playlist. And we will also upload them as a podcast into so wherever you get your podcasts nimsy um on spotify nimsy on um, amazon podcasts all of that and other than that i'm not <laughs> as as tempting as it is i i'm not going to go through and, and read everybody who said hi in the comments but if you said hi and where you're from then i appreciate it thanks for thanks for joining the chat today all right now that was that was your quick break guys let's go into the future here i want to talk about the future of design and localization. Um, I was just talking like right before this stream, I was talking to my, my internal teams. I'm like, this is it. This is it. Like design is the future for the localization department. Design is the new marketing. And by that, I mean that at least my experience in the localization industry is, is I felt like the last 10 years has been an like one of the challenges, like one of the points of conversation is like how to make the marketing team happy for localization is the marketing team is usually the ones with the highest requirements and the most specific requirements and everything. And we talk a lot about our marketing stakeholders when we localization professionals get together and, and chat about such things. And I'm thinking that marketing, like, all right, we've got a pretty good relationship there. The education's in place, the maturity's in place. Marketing teams in general see the benefits from localization. They see the benefits from culturalization. They see the benefits from working closely with a loc team. Design teams don't yet 
all of them. So that's why I like to say that um, design is the new marketing. Thoughts on that? Am I completely off base? Is design not the new marketing? I want someone just to be like, no, Tucker, you're wrong, and here's why. Would you please stop talking about this? Or am I right? You're right, yeah. You're you're right. And we see see more and more um, designers uh, taking uh, new responsibilities. So we've talked about uh, localization in the design team and actually what is the, the... the job description of these people t- today is what we uh, we used to call UX designer. Not now that we, we call them, we start to call them content designer. So, co- what are these uh, these these person? They are people maybe that previously would be part of the marketing team in the content teams, but are now part of the design team working on content, which we talked about localization and. Uh, there's also a uh, lot of people talking about, yeah, should we merge brand brand marketing into into design? And uh, and also we have famous uh, examples of uh, companies that are led by designers. So Airbnb is the, the greatest example of how you can succeed with a designer at the top of the company. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I agree with you. Like. Uh, Design is really uh, becoming more and more important, but why? Because what we we talk, when we, we say design, actually we we're talking about uh, a user centric approach to creating products and services, and I think that's what's what's behind this. It's like uh, we are more and more focusing on the users, and to, today it's the designers that are the closest to the users in their use of the product. Makes sense. Anything to add, Nicholas? I think that's absolutely perfectly summed up. If you have a great design and it's localized for your locale and you're solving a a pain for your customers to market your design in their language. Yeah, makes sense to me. I'm looking around here because I was trying to find like, an Apple box, like for like my AirPods or like, you know, like an old iPhone box. And you know what I'm talking about when I say I'm looking around for an iPhone box, because those boxes are so beautifully designed. You don't throw them away that, I mean, that's the power of design, right? Like when you can design a cardboard box that I'm not going to throw away, I've got like eight iPhone boxes here. It's like hard for me to throw them away. But anyways, the reason I wanted to see it is because when you open up an Apple product and it says like in very small text right there, it says designed in Cupertino, I think, or designed in wherever in Cupertino, California, USA. And it's like, that's all it says. That's all it says on a blank white thing. And so that tells me that someone in Apple may sees this as important enough to put there. And this is the one thing that they see. So it shows to me, it's like hmm, somebody out there is talking about the importance of design over at Apple. But let's um let's talk about the 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 future here, moving into the future phase. We talked about implementation, we talked about rollout, we talked about piloting, how to how to like get into this. But what 
does a design-centric localization. And you know what? I'm just I'm going to make a command decision right now. I don't want to talk about on for for the remainder of this podcast. I don't want to talk about design stage localization. I'd rather talk about design-centric localization. And and here's why. Tell me if you disagree with me. But design as a process, as a concept, as a way of life is is circular. It's cyclical, right? And I don't want to give the impression that if I'm talking about design stage, it's something that happens in the design stage and never happens again. I'm sure there's an ongoing, continuous process, but that's something that I don't have a whole lot of visibility into. Um, maybe I should have. Maybe I didn't read the whole case study. But talk to me a little bit about that. What's that look like at Withings? So, once once you have this implemented, is there ongoing maintenance? Is there ongoing continuous improvement initiatives? Um, yeah, so um, for both the, the features and, and, and the content and the localization, we, uh, we have uh, a feedback loop and we con- continuously improve what, what we delivered. So, um, and also with tools like Localize, uh, if you spot that you, you, made, you made a mistake on any translation, any, any word in, in the app, we, you can remotely update it. So that's also what uh, such such tool uh, is really important in terms of quality because mm-hmm. uh, we reduced the time to market of features, but we can also act on it just after. So um, basically what you, you, you could do with, uh, with Localize is that you, you could release uh, a, f- a feature without, without the translations and then push the translation uh, like just last minute. So uh, it's like seamless, it's continuous improvements. Um, and I can't wait to, uh, to see what uh, localized team is working for the future also. Talk to me a little bit about that. Like you can push a product without localizing. Specifically, what does that look like? Or you can like push a project without localizing until the last possible minute. So, what, well, so if we get back to the, the, the key topic actually, we, if, if we push the, uh, let's say, a feature and we have, um, let's say, 10 out of the 11 translations that are ready, but we know that the 11 language will be available in like hours, we can, we can, we can push the feature in prod. It will be for this local in English for a few minutes, and then we update the translations when they are ready. So, you, you gain time uh, launching a feature, but what's most important is that you can correct mistakes, potential mistakes remotely for everyone. So if you, you've made a mistake in one language and it's delivered to millions of users, mm-hmm. you can push an update and you don't need to release an, another app or a new version of your website. That is agile AF. I like that. I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of um, publish now, fix later, <laughs> which, yeah. um, you know, that's, that's the direction we're going as, a, I'm not even going to say as an industry, as a society, right? We, there is, mark my words, there is only a matter of time before Disney Plus starts pushing out movies that aren't finished and then updating, editing them on the fly based upon user experience. Maybe not Disney Plus, maybe somebody else will do that, but it's coming. It's coming because 
design principles have been around for a while. User centricity has been around for a while, but what hasn't been around for a while is just the massive amounts of usable data that we have in order in order to be able to track track what users are talking about. And I'm sorry, I'm risking on going off onto a tangent, which is not my, not my intent. I'll try to stay on topic here. Um, because in talking about the maintenance here, what are some of the success criteria? How do you measure success of a program? Nicholas, when you go in and you're setting up a new program for a new client, what are some of the KPIs and SLAs and things that you recommend that they track? Right. So, well, just to decouple a bit. So Localize is, is a TMS for a tool. So my main job is to onboard them, make sense of what they need and what functionalities out of Localize make sense for them, right? So we don't really advise on SLAs with LSPs. It's a bit different sure, uh, sure, sure. on that aspect. But uh, one of the greatest measure that I would say is to track the feedback loop at the end, right? Mm. So one of the things that I've started uh, recommending to customers is even if they don't have everybody trained in Figma or Sketch or design tool, do uh, export in PDF, the translated mockup of the product, share it with your market reps, with your local subject matter experts, get back that feedback loop that you can easily pass down to your LSP and tell them, okay, we'd like to change this tone in that locale. Uh, here's the feedback that we received. Um, and so from there on, you can probably put on key metrics and, and key values on, well, how often uh, did we have to, did we have uh, issues live from users or design bugs. We can track those, right? How many Jira tickets were open to fix design bugs uh, in production and and measure it after it's been implemented. So user, user, user-centric KPIs, essentially. And there, there's still a place for these. I was reading in the, where was it? I think it's the design the handbook that you guys published some of the kpis that that you recommend tracking for a localization program and there's a lot of just standard like on-time deliveries um uh project delays things like that average turnaround time time to market um adherence to budget um number of linguists or technical quality errors you know these type of things so we're not we're not completely reinventing the wheel here and this is something that i need to be careful about like when i'm out there talking about experience experiential language quality assessment xlqa and, and these other new concepts that that we're helping to push here at nimsy is we need to remember this is in addition to this is an, an evolution of existing principles in our industry that we all hold near and dear and it's not a replacement of because when we start talking about things like this, I, I, I can sense some some folks saying, but what about quality? What about traditional metrics? What about these? Is there a place for traditional KPIs, traditional quality assessment practices, um, traditional ter terminology, mining practices, and definition practices that historically have not been user-centric? Is there still a place for those as we move into a more user-centric ecosystem? Or do we just need to throw the baby out with the bathwater and start fresh? What do you think, Romain? Yeah, I think we we can maybe move to uh, some type of KPIs that 
not only uh, focuses on the success of the company, but uh, how users enjoy the product, how it affects their lives, and maybe more a qualitative uh, way of uh, um, measuring the the products. So maybe be uh, less quantitative. And we said we move to a fully user-centric approach. So let's focus on yeah our users uh, engage with the products, like the products, and what they feel, their emotions, and more qualitative way. That brings a and sorry, I'm not intending to cut you off here, but Michael Asquith just commented: brands will be molded by people and users. Ooh, I like this, and I want to hear your guys's input. Um. <laughs> Or I'll just talk about it because it's something that, that I like talking about. What is the balance between brands needing to provide thought leadership and brands needing to follow the desires of their customers? Because I think this is a balance that we need to come with, um, come up with as, as a global society. And I think that balance is highly culturally dependent. Even within the U.S., there are certain populations that do not want to be told what to do by a brand. And there are certain populations, and by populations, it could be anything, right? It could be age, it could be where you live or where you're from, what languages you speak. But... Um, <laughs> Should brands lead and say, you know, you know, F you, we're taking away your headphone jack? Or should brands listen to their audience? Where's the balance and what's the solution? Yeah, brands, actually, actually more and more brands today, uh, they leave because of their communities of users and customers. So uh, their, their brands should be trust with, the, with, with their communities. Because the communities expect the brands to uh, share the same values as them. So I think we, we are not anymore in a time where uh, customers are yeah, following what brands want to, to sell them. But um, in a way that uh, brands and uh, communities have to trust each other and share values. And we need transparency and respect between these. So... Yeah, I agree with the, the fact what Michael says that brands would be molded by the people and the, their users. Anything to add, Nicholas? Are you going to be smart? I'm not a product manager. I think Romain tackled that perfectly. Uh, this is probably a question for our own product owners and product managers at Localize, but this is part of the customer success job, right? So get that feedback loop from stakeholders, which are, I, I recommend every company out there to have a champion like Roman, by the way, just uh, excellent feedback to make you know our, our product uh, better every day. And that's how we align with our stakeholders, right? We engage with, with our customers and listen to the feedback, I suppose. Awesome. Yeah, right. thank, thank you. Thank you, Nicholas. Yeah, and that, that's, what, that's what we, uh, we made together this success story because we created this relationship with uh, local, the localized team that we trust each other. They listen to us, we, li we listen to them, and we actually we built together what is today uh, our process. So we, we didn't went to localize and use what, what, what they just built. We built it together with them. And, and you know what? 
I love that. I love these stories. And, you know, it's not just you guys. But anytime an organization is out there trying to do something new, whether or not they fail or whether or not they succeed, I, I always I always give them props, especially for an industry like the localization industry, which really is it, – it, it's time for a disruption. And like I think we're overdue for a disruption in our industry. Um, we haven't seen a disruption since – you know, I mean, things that disrupt our industry are typically things from outside our industry, right? That's that's the definition of disruption, or one of the definitions of disruption. And this is why I get so excited about things like design principles seeking into localization. Um, historically, I feel we've been very concerned with educating our stakeholders, educating our clients if we're vendor side. Educating, educating, educating. And I really hate talking about educating because I think it's an arrogant place to be coming from. I think it's basically saying like, look, product teams, look, marketing teams, look, whatever teams. Like you need to listen to us because we know the best about going global. We know the best about localization and translation and quality, which we do, (laughs) right? I'm not saying that's not true, but rather than... I think we can learn something from design and customer-centric principles in our industry because rather than trying to educate our stakeholders, we should be trying to empathize with them. You know, it's that first stage in you know, the five-stage design thinking process is called empathy. It's called empathize and understand. I think it's the first stage. And I look forward to this direction. I think it's a really interesting direction that, that our industry is going becoming more and more user-centric. I think we're going to be using terms like hyper-localized a lot more. I think we're going to be seeing a lot more international or global buyer personas or user personas that are actually localized user personas. It's not just like the American user persona with Asian faces swapped out for the entire APAC region. I've seen those before. Um yeah, I'm so sorry. I'm kind of going off on a little rant here when I should be asking you guys questions, but I'm kind of out of questions here. So I think this is a good place to start wrapping it up. And this, we'll get into Tux takeaways. How about that? Um, sorry, this is a horrible segue here. Anything to add, though, just because I know that was a big rant that I just went on. Any rebuttals or things to add from you guys? Personally, I think that we could uh, continue discussing this endlessly. There's so much to cover, to be honest. Um, I think Romain gave a lot of great insights, and I'd love to learn a bit more from your perspective, Tucker, really, because oh, I, think yeah, I think you're a <laughs> uh, localization expert, if we know any uh, right now. So where do you think, what, what do you think it's going to take for design stage to be implemented as the industry norm? I think it's going to take a few very successful, you know, a, a few use cases that show the results. And I think this is this is going to be our challenge in in the industry is how do you gather, analyze and report user feedback at scale across different markets, right? And, for, and at scale when there is no scale. What do I mean by that? I mean Facebook, I'm not concerned about. Facebook is analyzing data that 
you didn't you did not even know existed right so it's just got this huge corpus of data right um the Washington Post receives, you know, their Google Analytics page is just has a huge sample size, right? Smaller magazines don't, right? Smaller um, app developers, smaller, smaller software, you know, software as a service developers who aren't Facebook, smaller social media companies, I guess, um, they don't have that entire corpus of data. So they can't use data as a user feedback collection method, they're actually going to have to go out into the trenches somehow, metaphorical trenches, and get that feedback from, from their users. And, uh, you know, we're working here at Nimsy on several projects that in, involve surveys to collect data, um, you know, standardized survey designs um, across different markets to gather information on user perception of a product, uh, user behavior when using a product, asking no questions about language, asking no questions about quality, because at the end of the day, who cares about quality if the user likes the product, right? And besides, different, there's different expectations around quality out there anyway. So that, to me, is going... And we also see, um, you know, I was talking to Rickert Engels over at Zilio the other day. They've got their, their low-cub tool, which scans websites and in, in, a, in a somewhat automated way and reports different quality issues. Different things happening out there. But um, I'm interested to see which ones stick, right? What, what the final process is going to rely upon. Because what we're talking about is the next step for translation. And by next step, I mean the dreaded thing that linguists and language professionals and localization professionals, the dreaded thing that we're all going to have to work on when machine translation takes our jobs is going to be something like this, right? Translators that, and first of all, people have been afraid that MT is going to take their jobs for decades. <clears throat> Hasn't happened yet, right? So with that caveat having been said, translators out there, if, if let's say, for argument's sake, that the, the, the machines do take our jobs. They take all of the translation jobs. There's no more translation work available starting tomorrow. It's the translators that differentiate on, on skills like this, on how you know, cultural awareness, how to, how to best understand users in their market. Um, they become local market experts in certain fields, whether those fields be you know, social media or engineering or freaking automotive repair, whatever it may be. There's going to be an appetite for experts on markets, not just experts on language. We've gotten this whole way, um, you know, I've, I've built my whole career on being able to be an expert on localization, and now I have to become an expert on markets. And, yeah, that's, you asked. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you very much. That was very insightful. <laughs> Yeah, I, I could, I could, I could go on and on, and I do, I do in this. And here, do I have my camera working now? I once again check it out. The latest issue of Multilingual on page fifty-one, which should be arriving on your guys' doorsteps if you're watching. If you are not aware of Multilingual, then go on over to multilingual.com and make sure that you're subscribed. We also do have a digital version of the magazine available. So, with that shameless plug out of the way, with no further ado, let's get in to see what Tucker learned out of, out of this whole session 
here today. We'll do we'll do a t- um, a little segment we call Tux Takeaways here. And here's where I write down some notes while I'm talking to people and see what they say at the end. So takeaway number <laughs> takeaway number one for Tux Takeaways: Design stage localization is more about maturing existing processes and perhaps is not best for companies that are just starting to build out their programs. So this is something that I think I wrote this before I, I brought this up with you guys about is, is this something for existing companies? Is this something for new new things? Um, but my understanding of this is this is kind of a advanced level localization. It's not something people should be talking about before they have a TMS in place. Is that assumption correct? Yeah. In my opinion, it could be part of the TMS implementation, to be honest, because really? if you don't, if, you, if you're starting fresh, brand fresh, you don't have a legacy infrastructure and processes to care about. It's, it might be easier. You already need to start saying to, to think about your process and your workflow. Why not start from the beginning? What do you think, Romain? Yeah, you, at the beginning, you, you don't need to, uh, like uh, globalize at first or localize at first, but you, you have to anticipate it and really know, um, have this in mind and ask you, ask you to ask the question. Yeah. So I'm creating a product. I'm launching it in one market, in one language. But, uh, if, if I want to be successful, I will probably expand to other cultures and languages. So you have to think about it. So you can start using the tools, start implementing, implementing the process, but at a low cost, just to uh, set the first, the first steps, the first seeds of the process, to be prepared for when, you, when you, when you scale. Because if, if at some point you scale very fast and you have the legacy, it's it's a burden then to move uh, to a translation management system to uh, create the keys, to move to the design part. So yeah, anticipate uh, is, is uh, what you, you should do when you start a company. I'm glad I asked. <laughs> and th- thank you for correcting me because if I had that, that wrong assumption, then maybe someone else listening did. So I stand corrected. Tux takeaway number one, revised version should say that this is something to be thinking about. This is the future. And whether or not you're just rolling out a program or you've had a program that's been around for many, many years, it is never too late, never too early to start thinking about design stage localization. Takeaway number two. Let's see what we got here. Integrating design and localization requires a high level of collaboration between departments. So my takeaway here is, and I think it was Michael Michael over in the comments, which are turned off now, but Michael Asquith over in the comments um, said, aligning, not educating, which thank you for that contribution, Michael. This is in reference to our conversation earlier about, I don't like to use this word educate. It could be seen as condescending, but in order to roll out a program like this, alignment is absolutely needed. Alignment of goals, alignment of technology to the extent that's possible, and alignment of KPIs, performance metrics. And while I don't think this is controversial, to say, I will throw it back to the experts. Good. All right. I got two, I got two thumbs up. One, one thing. Yes. One thing. Yes. Uh, it mentions integration, but keep the, the conversation going post integration to maintain and make the process better, uh, as you go, right. It continues improvement. Perfect. Thank Thank you. Very useful. 
Duck's takeaway number three. All right, I'm one and one. Let's see how I can do number three here. People learn better when they are taught in their local languages. So when creating content for children. What is this? Oh, this is Tuck's takeaway from the last one. All right, I only have two Tuck's takeaways. <laughs> there, <laughs> there we go. I guess I forgot to take a third t- takeaway. We'll do it better next time. Gentlemen, I want to thank you very much for joining us here today. Um, I'm, I'm done. I've, I've been checking the, the questions here. Um, not a lot of questions from chat, but if you're watching this post post live, then make sure to check that out. Oh, I've got one one um, uh, no, that's that's from my old one too. Sorry, guys, I'm looking for my script. Ladies and gentlemen, and chat, we are out of time today. Sadly, if you enjoyed the Nimsy Live experience, then join us next time when I'll be talking on Tuesday slash Wednesday because it's an APAC episode, which means it'll be my nighttime, but morning over in the Asia Pacific region on October fifth and sixth when we're talking with Lucretia Jerab, and I'm pretty sure I have a button for this. Uh, uh, maybe not. Oh, there we go. When I'm talking to Lucretia Jarab, Yoko Chiba, and Scott Jackson about blockchain and what it means for the language and services industry. Well, I guess I don't have a button for this because this was supposed to be the next one. That's okay. And if you haven't done so already, download... Sorry, guys. I'm trying to get this off here. Well, there, there's a slideshow of you guys. Um, perfect. All right. Sorry, guys. Technical difficulties. As usual, this is a live stream. It's, it's why we go live, so that we don't have to worry about these things. So um, join us. Join us on October 5th and 6th for Lucretia. And the event is already created over there on LinkedIn, so it's not too late to go or it's not too early to go sign up for it. If you haven't done so already, make sure to go over here to the Nimsy Live event. Look, there we are. People are already leaving because we're coming into an end here. Download this guide, this guide right here, if you can see my finger. The complete guide to design stage localization. And it is a starting point for you because moving on from there, there are awesome checklists and whatnot and other resources that you can get all made available by the guys over at Localize. So if you haven't done so already, go over and check that out. And once again, this has been the Nimsy Live Experience. My name is Tucker Johnson. Um, it's been my pleasure to be your host here today for you. I appreciate our guests, Nicholas and Romaine. Once again, gentlemen, thank you so much for coming. Thank you. Thank you for the invite. And thank you, Nicholas, for the chats. Always great to chat with you. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Tucker. This was a pleasure. All right. I appreciate our guests. I appreciate everybody in this industry that contributes to NIMSI Research, and I appreciate you, chat, who is joining us live today. I appreciate the dialogue, the comments, the questions, and especially the criticisms. So make sure to keep those coming, and I will look forward to next time. Until then, this has been NIMSI Live. <laughs>